The encouragement of the Lord comes to us from Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and following. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Amen. If you would turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to 20, as we come to the conclusion of our look at Matthew's gospel. Matthew 28, 16 to 20, following the reading of scripture, we'll sing the Gloria Patri, which is printed for you in your bulletin. Please stand for the reading of God's holy word. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And God will add his blessing to this reading of his holy word. Amen. Let's bow for a moment of prayer, please. Father in heaven, as we come to your word today, I pray that you might be glorified in the preaching of your word, enable me to proclaim your truth in the way that it should be. And I pray, O Father, that you would give us great um, insight and encouragement to your word in obedience to follow it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We come to the Great Commission, a mission that's been put on the church to take the gospel throughout the world. And it's a fairly common criticism of the reformers or the reformed faith, those who hold to the sovereignty of God in salvation, to say they're not really interested in evangelism. And the question is, uh, is that charge true or justified? course, my answer is going to be no. But what lies behind my no to that? Well, the whole Reformation enterprise was an evangelistic enterprise. The passion to translate the Bible into the common language was at root motivated by the desire to every people from every language to have the scriptures in their own language, in their own, in, in their hands. The preaching of the gospel by the reformers wasn't just esoteric theology, but it was to gather the scattered people of God and to comfort them and direct them in the paths of the Lord and the, and the truth of God's word. Uh, people from all over um, the uh, European area came to Geneva to sit at the feet of John Calvin as he taught them. And then they would take those truths and go back to their own countries, for example, John Knox, and carry on the work of the gospel wherever they were were, were coming from. 
a couple other items. In 1555, John Calvin and others organized a mission to Brazil. They were sending the gospel to Brazil and those who would carry that gospel there. And they, those servants, those missionaries they sent were severely persecuted. At least five of the ones they sent were murdered. But they had the zeal and the desire and the willingness to sacrifice to take the gospel there. In 1577, a Calvinistic emphasis began a mission in Turkey. Uh, the Synod of Dort in 1618 and 1619, from which we get what we famously call our five points of Calvinism, a significant issue at that synod was the need for and the, how to encourage foreign missions to send the sending of missionaries. It wasn't just a theological day, debate. They were very uh, zealous about wanting to send missionaries. Uh, in 1622, a, a reformed seminary was established for the specific purpose of raising up missionaries to go throughout the world. Uh, in 1646, uh, a reformed mission sent missionaries to New England. Specifically, 17 mission outposts among the American Indians. They wanted them to hear the gospel. In 1706, a Dutch Calvinist mission sent missionaries to India. So long before William Carey, who's considered the father of modern missions, went on his missionary uh, venture to India in 1793, you had those committed to the Reformed faith who were zealous in pursuing the outreach of the gospel. What is it that motivated them and encouraged them to do that? Well, this passage is one of it. Uh, it obviously, we see our duty here, <clears throat> but we also see truths that empower us to do that and give us strength when we move forward. But before we get to the commission itself, there's a few more narrative uh, elements that are prelude to that. So we see in verse 16, the 11 disciples, Judas is no longer with them. He's dead. Uh, the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had told them to go. Now, Jesus had told the disciples to go to Galilee in one of his predictions of his uh, crucifixion and death and resurrection. He added to them, after I've risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. And we've seen in this very chapter, in the account of Jesus' resurrection, the angels tell the women, go tell the disciples to go to Galilee. And then Jesus meets the women and he tells them, go tell the disciples to go to Galilee. And so they knew they needed to go, even though there were other resurrection appearances prior to that, uh, there were, uh, they knew they had to go to Galilee, and so they went to Galilee to meet uh, with Christ. And, um, <clears throat> but the one thing we don't hear in any of these statements, go to Galilee, is the mountain. Matthew says they went to Galilee to the mountain that Jesus had told them to go. What mountain? Well, we don't know for sure, but thinking about it makes me wonder, 
Were there fond memories about this particular place? Is that why Jesus wanted to meet with them there? Was that the mountain where he sat down and gave his sermon on the mount, gave his great beatitudes? Was that the mountain on which the 5,000 were fed? Perhaps the mountain which the 4,000 were fed? Was it the mountain on which he called and appointed his 12 apostles? But it was a, a place, perhaps very special in their time with Christ, that they were called and to, to meet with him. And then the narrative continues. In the second element, they go to this mountain. And then it says in verse 17, and when they saw him, they worshiped him. What a significant thing for them to do when they encounter the risen Christ is to bow and worship before him. And it's a very significant thing because they're no longer debating over who gets the prime spots in the kingdom of God. They're no longer worried about who gets prominence. They bow the knee before this one who they know is the risen king. Uh, he's the Lord of Lords. He's the King of Kings. And they, they can't do anything but just bow at his feet and worship him. And it shows what is the devotion of their hearts and what is, should be of the devotion of our hearts to worship Christ above all else. But there's an interesting added comment. They worshiped him, but some doubted. Even at that point, not so much among the 11, but among all the disciples, among the large group, that was probably the meeting of uh, that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15 of 500 disciples at one time uh, saw Christ. But we know that believing Christ is raised again was a challenge. We know that 10 out of the 11 were convinced the night Jesus was raised from the dead because Jesus met with them in the upper room and they saw him, touched him, ate with him. But Thomas wasn't there, and so he didn't believe. He doubted. Until a week later, Jesus appeared to all the disciples with Thomas present. And he too bows on his knees and cries out, my Lord and my God. But perhaps there were others among that 500 that hadn't seen him yet. And they looked at him from a distance and wondered, is that who that is? But then when they get close, they see this is Jesus. And they worship him. Then Jesus comes to them and he gives them these words that we're going to look at. Uh, William Hendrickson has a great little outline. A great claim, a great commission, and a great comfort. And we'll look at it in exactly that way uh, to get your numbers flowing in your mind. The, um, in those three elements, there are four universals. So you got three and four. Can you keep all that straight? Four universals. All authority. Uh, all nations. All Jesus commanded. And all our days. So we come to the first element of the great claim. 
there at the last of verse 18, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority. There is no authority greater than him. All authority in heaven and all authority on earth. And we see anticipations of this in Old Testament prophecy in Daniel chapter 7 when the Son of Man ascends to the Ancient of Days. We are told this, that he, the Son of Man, was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And God established, and the Old Testament seems to indicate, that God delegated to certain other authorities, some heavenly authorities, certainly earthly authorities, Adam and Eve to rule on God's behalf on this earth, <clears throat> that he had delegated ruled to certain other authorities. He never relinquished his absolute authority, but God used and delegated some roles of rule to others. But now it's all consolidated in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. He alone has all authority, dominion, and power. Uh, It's the reward for his great mediatorial work, the redemption that he's accomplished, that Christ, having been crucified, dead, buried, has been raised again, and he's ascending to the right hand of the glory of Almighty God. And we see this reflected on, too, in this authority in some of our epistles. Remember in Philippians chapter 2, after we hear about Jesus humbling himself, humbling himself and becoming obedient unto death, even death on the cross. What are we told? Therefore, God highly exalted him and gave him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on the earth and those under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. We have at the end of Ephesians chapter 1, after talking about the power of God revealed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Paul tells us that he was seated at at God's right hand in the heavenly, heavenly realms, far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion, And every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Jesus Christ was exalted above all things. And that great claim and that great truth, why was it so important for Jesus to give that to his disciples? Well, one of the reasons would have been so that they would know That there is no power on this earth or no power in heaven that can thwart God's plan in their lives. To help them to know that wherever they go carrying out this commission, they would know that the power of Christ is with them. The power of Christ stands in all that they do 
in their service for the Lord. It's to empower us to say with Paul, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. So that whatever it is that we encounter, we know that Jesus Christ has the authority and the rule over all of that. And we can rest in his power and his might. Another reason might have been that these apostles were being going to be given a great commission. And part of their mission is to go out. And one of the things that they would also proclaim is that Jesus Christ is Lord and you need to bow the knee to him. We look at the gospel as an invitation And that's fine and that's fair in the sense it is an invitation for people to come to Christ. But what we can't forget is the proclamation of the gospel is a summons. It's a summons you can't ignore. It's a summons that you must bow the knee to this exalted Christ. He has all authority Dominion and power in heaven and on earth. You must bow the knee to him. You can't ignore it. You get a jury, you get a jury summons. You dread that, but you get it. And you may be able to get an excused absence, but you cannot ignore it. You have to respond to it. You have to listen to it. The gospel is a summons, bow the knee to Christ. And you're held accountable to what you will do with that. But you can't ignore it. And the apostles had to proclaim that. Well, then we move from the great claim to the great commission. It, uh, in verses 19 and following, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. Um, Jesus is giving us this great commission, this command of the mission of the church, perhaps specifically to the apostles and in their stead uh, officers in the church. But in, in another sense, to all of us, we have this commission. Uh, Sproul has an interesting comment as he reflects on it. He says, we have to understand that when we speak of the great commission, it's not the great suggestion It's not the grand idea. It's not an essay on manifest destiny. It is a mandate from the king of kings who possesses all authority in heaven and on earth. So what are we to do in this great commissions? Uh, Therefore, built on Jesus' great glory, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. We're told to go. Um, we're all in some sense limited on how we can go and where we can go, but we're to leave, we're to go. What's interesting is this command to go is um, very much in sharp contrast to the command that Jesus gave in Matthew 10. In Matthew 10, when Jesus was calling the disciples together and sending them out to proclaim the message of the kingdom of God, The thing he told them that day 
was go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, but do not go to the Gentiles. The gospel pre-resurrection was very particular. The message was very particular to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But post-resurrection, now it's go to all nations. We can't look at any nation as being somehow unworthy of the gospel. Sadly, in the past, maybe some Christians did, but we can't. We go to all nations uh, with this message of the gospel. And what are we to do? We're to make disciples of those in all nations. It's not enough to make a convert. It begins there. It's not enough to make a convert. We need to make them disciples. What does that mean? It, it means to put them under the discipline and the discipleship of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, they're becoming a Christian. They're being saved by grace means something in the way they live, in the way they carry out their lives. And you and I are, are to be uh, in involved in doing that. We can do it in a lot of different ways. It might be a Sunday school class. It might be one-on-one uh, discussing scripture. It might be another small group in some other way, but we need to be interested in, or part of the commission is not just to tell them how to become a Christian, but to help them in living as a Christian, putting them under the discipline of God's word. That's very, very important. We might have some struggles with the, the crusade model uh, in some ways, but one of the, and even some of those who preach in crusades will say one of the disadvantages is someone may come to know the Lord at those, but then they don't have anybody to guide them in the, their walk with the Lord. And that's our calling. We are called to make disciples of all nations. And then he tells us to do Two things, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teaching them to obey all things that I've commanded you. And so he gives us where baptism is a part of our mission and teaching. And we might think, well, isn't that backwards? We should teach and then they'll want to become baptized. But... The reason for the order that they are given is baptism is a picture of that grace that God gives to the hearts of people, men and women, boys and girls, to come to Christ. That's the beginning of their walk with the Lord. They're going to need the teaching, but baptism is a beautiful picture of the work of God in their heart. And it's mentioned first as a, as a reflection of the sign that's given as a sign of that faith that brings them to the Lord. And that faith is a gift of God. Baptism is not a picture of what the person does. Baptism by water is a picture of what God does in washing us from sin and making us his own. And so while we have our debate with our Baptist friends. We believe, we too believe in believer's baptism. That is, if a person comes to know the Lord and has not been baptized, they need to be baptized as a sign, not of anything they've done, but a sign of the grace 
that God has given to them that they embrace by faith. But then along with that baptism is a, the formula for baptism. They're baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's, note it's a singular name, baptized in the name. It's one name, it's a singular name because there's one God. But that God has revealed himself in the three persons of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we see in that formula a wonderful reminder of the blessed work of the triune God, the Father who elects and, and chooses us and sends his Son and adopts us into his family. And the work of the Son who by his sacrifice atones for our sin and washes and by his blood washes away our sin. And the work of the Holy Spirit that calls us and draws us to the Lord and dwells in us and sanctifies us and empowers us to live for the Lord. So the mode isn't here because the important thing is not whether you were immersed, not whether you were sprinkled, but the important thing is, has the work of the triune God been at work in your life? So as part of our mission is to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then secondly, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. All that Jesus has given us is, is fair game for us to be taught. All his promises all his commands, all his rebukes, all his encouragements, all his predictions, all his marvelous teaching, all of it is a part of what we need to be taught and we need to understand so that we can live faithfully for the Lord. This is the mission of the church. It's part of what we are called to do. It's part of what we are called to accomplish in this life, the teaching ministry of the church has been a part, a significant part of the church ever since its beginning. Uh, George Knight wrote, the early church was interested in edification as well as evangelism, in sanctification as well as conversion, in church government as well as preaching. And there's a writing from the first century called the Didache, so some subtitled The Teaching of the Twelve Apostles. And it's long been considered a basic statement of what, how Christians should conduct their lives once they've become, come to know the Lord. So from the very earliest days, it's been part of the mission of the church, not only to present Christ and seek to win people to Christ or present Christ to people, but it's been part of teaching them and instructing them in the way that they should go. So we have a great claim by Christ, a great commission that we need to be about as a church, as leaders, as, as members. And then the last thing is the great comfort. And the last part of verse 20, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. <clears throat> And that's the NIV, and it's a fine translation. It's a good, good translation. Some of yours may be a little different. But to be quite literal, 
Uh, what we have is, and behold, I, and this I is underscored, it's repeated twice, I, I. Because Jesus wants us to know this is not a superficial promise. This is guaranteed by his own person, the one who has all authority, power, and dominion. He says, I will be with you all your days. Always is a fine translation, but it's all your days until the end of the age. It's the promise of his presence with us always. And you know that in some contexts I've talked about how the end of the age sometimes, like in Matthew 24, refers to the end of the old covenant age. And so Jesus was preparing his disciples for the the tribulation that they would go through up until the destruction of Jerusalem. But this text has a broader scope in view, and so I don't think we narrow it to confine it to the end of the Old Covenant age in this context, in this text. But we see that it's, it's a promise for every generation. It's a promise for Christians at all times. That all of us can read this and know that that promise is for me. That Jesus said he would be with us all our days until the very end of time. And it's this comfort that we need to grab a hold of. And understand its truth for us. And as we bring Matthew to an end with this particular comfort, what's interesting is this promise of Jesus' presence, interestingly enough, is woven throughout his whole gospel. Matthew begins his gospel after the, the genealogy of Jesus Christ with the story of the angel's visit to Joseph. And in that story of that visit, he quotes from Isaiah. He says, Behold, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and his name will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. So from the very beginning, Matthew wants you to hear the word God with us. Then in the middle of the gospel in Matthew 18, he makes, Jesus makes the comment, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in their midst. Jesus wants you to know he is there with you. And now here at the conclusion of it all, he wants you to know, I am with you all your days. No matter if the days you feel alone, all of us have those. You need to remember Jesus' promise. You're never alone. He is with you always, even to the end of the age. May you and I rest in that promise and in that hope and encouragement 
walk in the strength of his power, performing his mission to his glory. Amen. Let us pray. Thank you, Father, for the glory of this passage and all that it points us to. Most of all, for the glory of our Savior, for the greatness of the work that he's given us to do, but most wonderfully, the comfort of his presence. Help us day by day with whatever we encounter to remember the hope of that and find in you our peace and encouragement to the glory of your wonderful name. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.